From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The incidence of kidney stones is said to be increasing worldwide, with around 15% of the population at risk for stone formation. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio to discuss what to do about kidney stones is Dr. Scott Weiner, an assistant professor of urology and the director of the kidney stone program in the Department of Urology at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Weiner. Thank you for having me, Amber. It's a pleasure to be here. So what are kidney stones? What are they made of? So most kidney stones are made of uh, calcium-based minerals. Many of that is calcium oxalate. Some are calcium phosphate. And there are a variety of other more rare types of kidney stones, such as uric acid, cysteine, and uh, other more rare types than that. What's the medical term? There are a variety of terms that we use. Sometimes we'll call them nephrolithiasis or urolithiasis. Sometimes we will describe that in terms of what organ the stone is in. So if it's in the kidney, we may refer to it as nephrolithiasis. If it's in the ureter, it may be ureterolithiasis. Well, I was going to ask, the stones can form anywhere along the urinary tract? Typically, we think that stones in the kidney are forming, uh, for the most part, on a small plaque called Randall's plaque. Think of the plaque that forms on your teeth when you don't brush often enough. It's the same material. This is calcium phosphate. Calcium phosphate is found all throughout our body and makes up almost all pathologic biominerals. So that's the plaque on your teeth, the plaque in your heart that forms right before you have a heart attack, the plaque in the arthritic joints, and all sorts of things like that. So we're seeing these minerals all throughout our body, and for the most part, they're fairly similar. When they form in the kidney, they can break through the surface of the kidney, and just like when Uh, children make rock candy, they put the string in the sugar water, as soon as that calcium phosphate touches the urine, it blooms into a kidney stone. And that typically is made of calcium oxalate. You mentioned Randall's plaque, Mm -hmm. and you talked about the plaque in in your teeth. Mm -hmm. I brush my teeth, you know, twice a day Mm -hmm. to reduce this, but I can't do anything to reduce the buildup in my kidneys, can I? We don't really understand why this Randall plaque is forming. And We find it in many people who don't make kidney stones. But one thing that we do see is kidney stones attached to it. So we think it's very important. Once the stones form, however, there's not much that can be done except to remove them surgically or to pass them on your own. To prevent the formation of the stones in the first place, we have to really focus on diet, exercise, and in some cases, medication. So what are, let's, let's talk more in depth about how to prevent kidney stones, um, diet. Um, I've heard, you know, lots of fluids is Mm -hmm. is good. Water, Mm -hmm. um, uh, cranberry juice thing. Is there one fluid that's better than another? So what I typically recommend is the volume of fluid is the most important thing. So rather than making drastic changes to what you're drinking, the, if you can do one thing is to drink lots of fluid. So Typical recommendations are for 1.5 to 2.5 liters of urine production per day. So in order to meet that, a person needs to drink much more than that, so 2 to 3 liters of water per day because we sweat and have other ways in which we lose water. So it can be difficult, and um, especially when taking into consideration that we recommend a low-salt diet, patients very often aren't thirsty. So it's a real challenge to increase uh, fluid intake with kidney stones. You have to think about it and make sure that you're... Yeah, doing... it has to be a conscious effort for most people. Now, are there any signs, like how would a person know that they're prone to develop kidney stones? 
So sometimes a family history is important, but for most people, it comes out of nowhere. Often they'll report that it was two in the morning, they were asleep and they woke up suddenly. Perhaps they rolled over and the kidney stone fell into place uh, and just so obstructed their kidney and caused that severe pain. Are there certain people that are more um, prone? You, you said family history sometimes matters, but other than that, are men or women more prone? Yeah, historically men have been more at risk, and we sort of attributed that to dietary risk factors and maybe hormonal influences, but more and more we're seeing women affected by kidney stones. And this has matched pretty closely the rise in obesity and diabetes and uh, what we consider to be the Western diet high in salt and protein. All right. Uh, at certain ages? Uh, typically, um, if a child is forming kidney stones, it's more likely to be a genetic or familial kind of kidney stones. We mostly see kidney stones in the fifth and sixth decades. Well, we talked about things to uh, fluids to eat or ingest um, to reduce your risk. Are there things to avoid eating that would reduce your risk? Sometimes if the kidney stones contain oxalate, meaning that they're calcium oxalate stones, we recommend um, consuming a normal amount of calcium in your diet, so don't avoid calcium. And when you do eat foods that are rich in oxalates, like teas, chocolates, and nuts, to have a little bit of calcium with those foods to bind that oxalate in your intestines instead of in your kidneys. So calcium, when you say calcium, I think of milk, That's, but there's yep. other things that have calcium. Sure. Um, so milk products, uh, supplements like Tums or other over-the-counter calcium supplements are fine to have. We want about 1,200 milligrams a day. So even though the kidney stones are made up of calciums, is it the same calcium that's in milk? Yes, it is the same calcium. The main thing to recognize is that it's better to have those minerals form in your, in your intestines, in your stomach, than in your kidneys. So uh -huh. if we eat the calcium, we prevent our body from having abnormalities in calcium metabolism, and that prevents loss of calcium in the urine. Additionally, it binds that oxalate in the intestines. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Scott Weiner, an assistant professor of urology who directs the department's kidney stone program. Now, from what I've heard, kidney stones can be extremely painful. And you mentioned they may wake someone up from a sound sleep in the middle of the night. Um, is that pain a signal that it's an emergency and you need to get to the hospital? Yes, I think whenever someone has severe unexplained abdominal or flank pain, it's important to seek medical care. Um, one thing to consider is that uh, just having a stone that's passing doesn't mean you need a procedure. So when you come to the emergency room and if they diagnose you with a kidney stone, if possible, they would want you to try to pass that stone on your own. If it's small enough and if there are no other signs of infection or kidney damage or any other problems, then they may send you home with uh, appropriate pain medications and see if the stone will pass. Perhaps they would ask you to strain your urine, and if that doesn't work, then there are a variety of surgical procedures that we can use to help you out. Now, how do they find out for sure that you've got a kidney stone? If you come in with this pain, it, I mean, it could be something else, right? Yes. So historically, we've been doing uh, CAT scans, which is a scan that uses a lot of x-rays to diagnose the kidney stone, and increasingly concerns about radiation exposure have shifted us towards ultrasound in the emergency mm. room setting. So ultrasound doesn't show us much about the stone. It doesn't often tell us how big the stone is or exactly where it is. So 
what we can see is a blockage of the kidney. So if someone comes in with a blockage of the kidney and they're otherwise healthy, uh, the suspicion would be for a kidney stone. Depending on the variety of factors, the urologist may get a CAT scan afterwards, but um, don't be surprised if an ultrasound is the only thing that's used to diagnose the stone. So how do you determine whether the person can go home and pass the stone on their own or, or not? So typically the stones are less likely to pass based on the size of the stone. So about five millimeters, about the size of a pea, is sort of the cutoff between the 50% chance of passing a stone. So less than that, more likely than not to pass the stone. Over five millimeters, less likely to pass the stone. Once we get to about a centimeter, it's very unlikely to pass the stone. That's about the size of a dime. Wow, okay. So a few weeks back, Gene Simmons from KISS was said to have had a stent placed to help him expel a kidney stone that he had. Um, I'd never heard of the stents in in the kit. Tell me about how that's done. So a stent is a small plastic tube. It has a coil on both ends, uh, and it's about 10 inches long. And what this does is it bypasses the stone. It goes from the bladder to the kidney. You don't see it. It's inside the body, and it's placed using a camera, so there's no cuts or incisions to place it. We typically place a stent for patients with a stone under a few sick, few situations like pain that's too severe to tolerate uh, pain medicine at home with nausea and vomiting and you just can't keep anything down. If there's injury to the kidney as a result of the stone like a rise in your creatinine or if there's any sign or symptom of an infection like a fever. Okay. Well, um, let's talk about the people who might need some sort of an intervention, Um, if not a stent, maybe something else. What can you tell me about the surgical options that there are? So there are three main types of surgery that we offer for kidney stones that are the most common procedures performed. So first of all, there's shockwave lithotripsy, which is a form of uh, sound waves that are delivered to the kidney at very high intensity while the person is sedated. These machines are brought in Uh, to the person's side near the kidney stone, and the sound waves are focused on the stone. This is then used to break up the stone, but really the limitation is that the patient has to pass those fragments on their own after the procedure. Most people do this just fine, but being less invasive, it's also a little bit less likely to clear the person of all of the stones that they might have. So they'll still have to deal with passing They will have to pass those stone fragments, yep. Um, You said they're sedated, so they don't really feel what is happening. The person wouldn't feel the procedure, but um, it's because it's uh, minimally invasive. The person, you know, may be able to um, recover a little bit quicker than some of the other procedures and go home. And that's really the main advantage to the procedure. Okay. Another option is what we call ureteroscopy. That's when we take a small telescope. It's a about uh, the size of a very thick spaghetti noodle. And we take that and we can go up through the urethra into the kidney without any cuts or incisions or anything like that. And we find the stone using the camera and we can actually use uh, a laser or other small tools to break up the stone and remove all of the pieces. And that's nice because we can see that we've removed the pieces and we can guarantee that uh, there's no more stones. That is a little bit more invasive, but a little bit more effective than the shockwave therapy. And the patient is uh, under the patient anesthesia would be asleep, for that? Yep. Okay. All right. Yep. Um, typically, the patient would end up with one of those stents we discussed earlier, which can be a little bit uncomfortable. So some people would prefer a shockwave over the ureteroscopy for that reason. 
Um, does the stent get removed later? Yeah, we typically stay? take it out about a week later, but depending on the situation, the number of days the stent stays in changes. And so you've got to live with it in there for that long. Exactly. And it's, yeah. Okay. Now, with both of those that you've mentioned, does do they require a hospital stay? No, both of those are uh, same-day procedures, so there's no overnight stay unless there's some sort of problem. But uh, those problems are rare, and I'd say more than 95% of people go home the same day. Okay. And you yep. mentioned there's a third procedure? Yes. The third option is for larger stones. It's a little bit more invasive. It typically requires uh, one night in the hospital. That's called a percutaneous, meaning through the skin, nephrolithotomy, meaning removal of stone. So essentially, we take a needle and we introduce it into the kidney through the back. And um, at this point, we can uh, put a larger telescope in a small incision in the back. That incision is about the size uh, of a dime, uh, and the tools we use are a little bit larger than a pencil. So you go directly into the kidney? We go directly into the kidney. From there, we can use special tools to break up the stone and suck out the pieces. Um, typically, we would do this procedure on stones that are uh, two centimeters or, lar or larger. Okay, so they have to yeah. be pretty big. They have to be pretty big, um, but in some circumstances, smaller stones are appropriate for this procedure as well, especially if the person wants to be sure that all of the pieces are gone. So the kidney is a solid organ, mm -hmm. and it's pretty good size. How do you know where to go in the kidney? That's a very good question. So uh, typically, uh, in upstate New York, uh, for many years now, a person has had to undergo several procedures in order to actually have the stone removed in this fashion. First, the person would go to sleep, and a urologist would place a catheter in the kidney from below. Then a radiologist would introduce the needle into the kidney and uh, perform what we call renal access. This would allow the urologist to then place the special tools into the kidney and remove the stone later that day. So it actually is three separate procedures, which is a lot. Um, fortunately now, I've brought a technique called ultrasound-guided percutaneous renal access to Upstate New York, and Upstate is the only institution in Upstate that's doing this particular procedure. So my patients come into the operating room once, they go to sleep, I'm able to find the kidney with an ultrasound, introduce that needle, and then introduce my surgical tools all in one setting. Is the uh, ultrasound live, so you're working while you're watching exactly. the Exactly. Uh, I'm able okay. to see the kidney and diagnose where the stones are in the kidney and any abnormalities to the kidney that I might see on that ultrasound. So you can see whether you got the stone you came after. Exactly. Right we can then. see real-time what's going on. Neat. And the, does that require a patient to stay in the hospital afterward? Uh, typically, my patients would spend one night in the hospital, although um, more and more we may be moving towards same-day discharge. Wow. Well, this has been very interesting. Thank you to Dr. Scott Weiner, Assistant Professor and Director of the Kidney Stone Program in Urology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.